I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen. That the scripture might be fulfilled, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, that you may believe that I am. Most assuredly I say to you, he who receives whoever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he had said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor which apparently seemed to have been a regular thing. Having received the piece of bread, when he went out immediately, he then went out immediately, and it was night. So then he had, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I should be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me thrice. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, we seek you. We seek to, to understand you. At a time of your greatest, one of your moments of greatest pain, to be troubled, to be vexed, to be agitated, and to stare at men who, on the route there, have argued over who would be greatest. And here you are about to die for them. When you're washing the feet of your betrayer, and I pray you would redeem every second that we would get the seriousness of this text, but also the beauty in it. We don't want to be, Lord, like the Laodicean church that's lukewarm, apathetic to hearing your word. Or the Ephesian church that, though they can use your word, they've left that relationship with you, they've left their first love. And somewhere in it, even though they know the truth and they can spot a fraud, they somehow are still blind to the fact that they've fallen so far from where they started. And I pray today that you would grab the defibrillators and jumpstart our hearts, God. Ignite us today, please. May your word burst open and come alive and truly minister to us now. Redeem every second in Jesus' name. Immerse me in your spirit to do your work your way. Amen. Like always, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. We have two Simons, one manner or another. <clears throat> Exclusive to the Gospel of John is this title for Judas. Judas the son of Simon. We see it in John 6.71 and in John 13.26. We see here in John 13.2, the supper was ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son. 
uh, interesting for what it's worth. John mentions this Judas as a son of Simon, whoever the Simon is. Simon Peter is only one of a couple Simons, even within the Twelve. Uh, there is Simon the Canaanite, we know, for instance. However, I can't help but notice here in this chapter where Jesus now is sending off his betrayer during Passover, that both of them are mentioned here with a Simon. Simon was Peter's birth name. Peter was not actually his nickname, or if you will, sort of his sort of gang name. Uh, Peter was his surname. It was Simon Peter. Jesus gave Simon his surname. Now, I'm not saying in any way that Judas is, of course, Simon Peter's son. We, would have, we have no text to support that. But I can't help but notice that he keeps drawing these parallels. And I can't help, at least in my particular walk with him at this particular season, as I look at this, I can't help but notice that there are two... I mean, Jesus is staring in the face of one very obvious betrayer. He's washing his feet. That's Judas. But if we're going to be honest, he washes the feet of every one of them, knowing every one of them is going to flee him before the night's over. That includes John leaning in his bosom at this moment. He's staring in the face of every person who at this moment are going to give tremendous rhapsodies of their faithfulness and honor and love. And yet in all of that, Jesus knows that when it comes time for his arrest, ultimately he will wind up doing that alone. And he's staring in the face of Simon Peter. The man who we know from this is going to betray that he even knew him thrice before the morning comes, before the rooster crows. How would that be for you? You're being obedient to the Father. You're doing that which no human being wants to do. You're washing the nasty feet of a bunch of guys. And you're doing it as an example. And you know before the night's over, you're going to be standing alone. Would it be enough to say you've been faithful? Would it be enough to say you've been obedient? Even for the immediate moment, you really just don't see the fruit of it. And yet, we know this is, this is Friday. This is Jesus getting arrested and, and murdered by tomorrow morning. <coughs> that Jesus is going to resurrect in, t- in three days. And then from there, within 40 days, well, 50 days, there will be the Pentecost. And from there, there was, I mean, Jesus will go from a mass multitude to 70. Well, he've gone from 12 to 70 to a mass multitude to the massively bailing to where he gets to this point where he's got 12, or if you will, whoever's sitting with him now. That'll become 120 praying by Acts chapter 1. That'll become over 3,000 people before Acts chapter 2 is over. Can Jesus see that? Can he see the fruit that this is going to bear? Or can he just trust and hope? as love hopes all things, that he knows that disobedience is going to change everything. But I can't help but call this a tale of two Simons, because there are parallels between Judas Iscariot, who's our most obvious betrayer, and Simon Peter, who we have here. Simon Peter, by the way, for what it's worth, is called Simon Peter 20 times. Of those 20 times, 17 of them are in the Gospel of John. I find that interesting. But it isn't just... John that will call Simon Peter, Simon Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Simon Peter calls Simon Peter, Simon Peter. When he says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, we've already seen one parallel. And I'd like you to consider this. And that is that Peter has been forbidding Jesus from cleansing him. If you remember back when Jesus washed his apostles, his disciples' feet. Peter said, no, 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 Simon Peter, you shall not cleanse my feet like that. You shall not wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you'll have no part in me. He's like, well, then give me a bath. But imagine saying, no, Lord, you shall never do this. Interesting. Let me ask you something. The scripture hadn't been so clear on this. After Judas Iscariot had betrayed Jesus like this, did he actually feel remorse for what he had done? Scripture actually tells us he did. And with that, then, he returned the money. 
that he had been paid to betray Jesus, saying, I've betrayed an innocent man. By the time we're done with the whole story, what we'll find is that every person involved in Jesus' trial declares him innocent. There's the irony of the whole thing. The issue was not that Judas wasn't aware that he had done something wrong. And it wasn't even that Judas didn't feel bad for what he had done. Judas clearly felt bad. Do you know the biggest difference between Judas and Peter? Is that ultimately Peter would recognize where he could be cleansed. But Judas didn't. The biggest difference between Judas and Peter was not that Judas just simply betrayed him. They all betrayed him. Judas never denied that he knew him. It was where Peter would. But in the end of it all, Peter would actually have his sin handled by Jesus. And Judas wouldn't. In our text here from 18 to 38, there are three key words. In verse 20, verses 31 and 32, and in verses 34 and 35. And they're repeated very regularly in it. And those three words in verse 20, take a look at verse 20. Can you tell me what the word is that's repeated so much there? Receive. Look at verses 31 and 32. What word is repeated there? Glorify. Five times. How about verses 34 and 35? Love. What we're going to find are these become the three key points in Jesus' message as he speaks here that are different between Judas Iscariot and Simon Peter. But there are the three things that will decide today. And I genuinely believe within each of us is a little bit of Judas Iscariot somewhere that needs to die. The person who basically is surrounded and involved in, if you will, self-preservation. Now, I'm not saying in any way that Christians can be possessed. Actually, I completely believe opposite of that. God's not in a timeshare. And the moment you said yes to Jesus, God moved in and he made you his home. Praise God. And this is one of those places where I'm really glad God does not share. But Jesus now has been washing his feet. And now he says in verse 18, well, I don't speak concerning all of you. He did say in verse 17, by the way, I remind you, if we were to follow him as our Lord and teacher, that if we do these things, we're going to be blessed. That was what was in the balance. Now he takes a look at this, and he challenges us, and he says, but not all of you are going to be blessed. That's pretty obvious. Because I know whom I have chosen. Now, stop right there and consider this. There is, within the body of Christ, a group of people who that becomes their real, that becomes their sort of identifying feature is how they genuinely believe that God chose them, which, by the way, I wouldn't argue over. If they're saved, God clearly chose them. The argument, and I found the people that really, really emphasize that, it's never a question of whether God chose them, it's just whether God would choose someone else. And they say, well, you know, you understand. And I've even heard people, pastors say, well, we're the frozen chosen. I don't know why you would want to brag about something like that. But the point I'm saying in that is, is that in our text here, what's clear is Jesus chose Judas. So just to say you're chosen, you might want to be a little bit careful about that. And he says, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture might be fulfilled. And he quotes now from Psalm 41. Now, it's important to note here that Jesus knows that if it's in scripture, it can't be broken. It's not to be tweaked. It's not to be bent. It's not to be twisted. It is what it is. Jesus would say in John chapter 10, verse 35, the scripture cannot be broken. In Psalm 41, David is writing. He's fleeing for his life. And he says this in verse 5, My enemies speak evil of me. When will he die? When will his name perish? And if he comes to see me, he speaks lies. His heart gathers iniquity in itself. And when he goes out, he tells it. All those who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And I can't help but think that David, overwrought with grief over the situations, including his own son trying to assassinate him, must have looked like quite the dog's breakfast. He must have really looked rough. And the people are like, oh, that's an evil disease. It's clung to him. And it says, now that, it says, and now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. And then he says, even my own familiar friend, whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. David's chief counselor, Ahithophel, was a man, by the way, who was David's personal aide. He was there to help David. In essence, think of a, pers- think of a counselor in those days, kind of like a mentor. Somebody the king would have because he really just trusted his wisdom. 
But the problem was he was also, this man, Yitzhak, was also the grandfather to a girl named Batsheva. And that becomes our problem. And somewhere in it, of course, he is offended because his granddaughter has been brought into the palace. Her husband has been killed and she's been impregnated by the king. And David, somewhere in all this, recognizes, and in, in Psalm 45, David will confess his sin, or at least he will confess that he has sinned, but he sees now the consequences overwhelming him. And David looks at this and he says, of all the things, I would not have expected my familiar friend to be like this. But then he says in verse 10 of Psalm 41, but you, O Lord, be merciful to me. You do not ask for mercy unless you're wrong. Understand, getting mercy is simply getting what you do. I should say this, it's not getting what you deserve. That's mercy. When David asks for mercy, it's because David knows he's been in the wrong. He says, but you, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up that I may repay them. David asks for mercy, and then he asks for resurrection, if you will, and raise me up. Now, Jesus knows this text, and what would it be like to be Jesus? You read the Bible and you realize it's all about you. Now, I mean, we read the Bible and we should recognize it's all about us, but not in the same way. We're the recipients of the love. We are the recipients of God's pursuit. We're the recipients of the blood that is shed to cleanse us. We are actually the beneficiary of all of the promises, if you will, that God has laid out to those that he's adopted. But Jesus, he's reading it in things like, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and they've plucked out my beard. I didn't hide my face from their spitting or my back from their whipping. How would you like to read that information and know that's about you? And he knows none of it can be broken. And he looks and he realizes part of this is that he is going to get betrayed by somebody here that would become so clear and evident is that Jesus did not treat him any differently than the rest. Had he, they would have known when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, and they'll go, well, clearly it's him. Let's just be honest. When Jesus says, one of you will betray me, my first thought is, Simon Peter. Who else did Jesus say, get behind me, Satan, to? And Jesus says this in verse 19. Now I tell you this, before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. Jesus has this common habit. He'll say it twice more in essence, John 14, 29 and 16, 4, that he wants you to know, let me say it this way. It's the forewarning often before the fulfillment. God wants you to know two things. One is that he's even in control when it seems like it's total chaos. And the second is that he is. He says this in comparison to the idols that Israel was worshiping during the days of Isaiah. In Isaiah 41.23, he says, Show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that you're God's. Yes, do good or evil, that we may be dismayed and see it all together. God is actually calling a challenge, kind of like a rap battle, but better. And he's calling them to the, carpet, to the carpet, and he says, take the mic and prove it, If these idols. Yet God says in Isaiah 48.5, even from the beginning I have declared to you, before it came to pass, I have proclaimed it, lest you should say that my idols have done this, and my carved image and my molded image have commanded them. He's like, I do these things so you know that this is me. And you'll find throughout Scripture, God often has this way of revealing himself right before some really wonky stuff takes place in your life. And Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees God on the throne. In Ezekiel, he sees God on the throne. In Ezekiel 1, in Revelation 4 and 5, John sees God on the throne. And it's right before some pretty awful stuff. Why would God do that? And then you have that 6 through 18 part of Revelation that no one really likes the most of because it's the part where lots of people suffer and lots of stuff dies and all that. He shows you the throne first. He's like, you need to know I'm on the throne before all of this happens because I'm still in control. Well, with that in mind, Jesus goes to our first of our three things that will separate. And the question is, are we here with Jesus like we should are we going to be more like Judas? Most assuredly, I say to you that he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. It's a simple thing. When you're sent in Jesus' name, you receive the sender, not just the sent. And the term for receive is the word lambano. And it literally just means to take upon yourself, to embrace. And God demands to be received on his terms. 
And he looks and he goes, I need you to receive me. But if you receive me, you'll receive the one who sent me. And when I send you, the same thing's going to happen. So you recognize it happens on both sides. So when he said these things, he became tarasso. He became agitated, like if you were to watch a washing machine while it's turning. That's what's happening in Jesus' heart right now. It's what's happening when you look at a kettle right before it turns off. That's what Jesus' heart is looking like. And he testified and he said, I'm most assuredly, or literally, amen, amen, I tell you, one of you will betray me. And it's important to recognize Jesus does have feelings. And Jesus has feelings, and part of those feelings are pain. Part of those feelings are genuine pain. I've got to be honest with you. I hate the fact to think that I could have caused Jesus any pain. Now, I'm not even talking about those days before I knew the Lord when I did it in ignorance. I'm talking about since I've been a Christian. Those moments when you know you shouldn't do something, and even if it's just do nothing when you should be doing something, you choose it anyways. But notice in verse 22 that the disciples looked at one another perplexed about whom he spoke. And this tells me that, Jesus, that Judas had everyone fooled but one person. And since Jesus had already said in Matthew 16, Mark 8, Luke 4, get behind me, Satan, to Peter, it would have made sense to me that I would have thought there. And the point is, is look, at, you can fool me. You can look like super Christian. You can practice your lines and the whole bit. But in the end of it all, you're never going to fool Jesus. And he's really the only person that matters. In verse 23, it says, There was, leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Stop. Jesus said, you need to receive me. To receive, by the way, is a passive action, and I'd like you to consider this. And now we see where we receive Jesus to, if you will, or where he receives us to. If Abraham were to throw a, a brick at me, not that I would assume that he would do such a thing. If he were to throw a brick at me, I have two options. If I want to get hit, and Abraham actually has any fairly decent aim, all I have to do is nothing. My body will actually respond quite kindly, well, I shouldn't say that way, quite unkindly to the blow. It'll actually receive that blow and it'll respond accordingly. But if I don't want to receive it, then I have to actively move out of the way. The term receive here is carefully chosen by God. The idea of receiving Jesus and therefore receiving the Father is the idea that when Christ's, when the gospel of Jesus Christ comes at you, if you allow the Holy Spirit the work is convicting your heart about the truth of that, you will actually respond. It'll hit you. But on the other hand, have you ever shared with someone and you can see them? It's almost like everything's a ninja move verbally when you talk to them because you're talking to them and then they'll divert it to something that makes no... It's like you're telling them that Jesus died for you and they're going to ask you about Trump like that has any purpose in the conversation at the moment. Or, well, what about this or that? And then sometimes it's like, I've never seen, it's like chasing a rabbit. And it's like, you know, you know what you're doing is you're just kind of blocking things and you're moving them out of your way because you're, you're not receiving. And to not receive, there is an action of evading that information. And that's, but, but here's what is offered to us when I'm throwing Jesus at you. And I see it here with John, the writer of this gospel, who writes in verse 23 that he was leaning on Jesus' bosom. Now that may not mean much to you, but it means a tremendous amount to me. Throughout Scripture, there is this place of safety, vulnerability, and peace. It is the place of the bosom. Now, I'm not trying to get weird because this isn't a man-woman thing here. Although clearly that becomes the beginning of it when you were first born. There was a place of safety, vulnerability, and peace that was to be offered you. Pardon me, again, I'm not trying to be weird to feed you. And that place gets established as a place of safety, of vulnerability, and peace. Listen to what John says so you recognize it's not just that. In John chapter 1, verse 18, 
No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Jesus is in a place with the Father of total safety, vulnerability, peace. And might I add one more word? Intimacy. I get why Jesus would say in Luke chapter 13, verse 34, descending on Palm Sunday, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And there's the idea again of safety, vulnerability, peace, and intimacy. This was the promise in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11, about our good shepherd, He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are young. A place of safety, vulnerability, peace, and intimacy. It shouldn't surprise me then that when Jesus gives us the story in Luke chapter 16 of the rich man and Lazarus, that Lazarus and the rich man both descended at that time. And yet, when the beggar died, verse 22, it says, he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, a place of safety, a place of vulnerability, a place of intimacy, a place of peace. Now, this is the place that John is resting the moment with Jesus. Do you know when Moses, and you're probably aware that Moses has these like hissy fits with God. He actually argues with God. He says, he gets really sassy. And in Numbers chapter 10, verse 11, Moses says, did I beget them, speaking of the nation Israel, that, that you should say, carry them in your bosom? And might I say, the general role, the genuine role of a pastor A shepherd is one who will carry the sheep in his bosom. Now, that may not necessarily be the most physical thing. Don't worry, I'm not here to cradle you guys, because that would be weird for both of us. But, you wind up in my prayers a lot. I spent maybe two hours yesterday just walking and praying. I'm praying for you all. It wasn't like you were on a list and I needed to tick boxes. You were worse than being on a list. You were in the bosom. And watch this with a couple. When you see someone in you're talking to, and they are now in a place where they are emotionally threatened by you. I'm not talking about they feel physically threatened by you. But they don't trust you. They're not willing to be vulnerable because for whatever reason they don't see it. You know one of the first things they do is they do this. They block the bosom. They cross their arms. And you watch couples as they evolve. And I'm talking about couples that aren't like going to jump into something that night kind of thing. Christian couples. They start by sitting next to each other. Maybe there'll be an occasional bump and you kind of see the sparks flying. You watch where that's going. And somewhere down the line, that'll evolve to holding hands. As it evolves, and I'm not talking about, you know, I'm not trying to tell you this is the set order and so forth, but you watch this. It becomes an evolution. And there's a hand holding. And at this point now, there's a point where they're willing to be seen as a couple. But somewhere down the line, you watch as the couple grows more intimate to the place where they feel safe with each other, to the place where they're intimate and vulnerable with each other. They wind up in each other's bosom. Now, I'm not talking about some weird sensual thing, but you watch them. They go from hand-holding where they're still a bit at a distance to the arms around each other. And and you watch couples that have been together and intimate and close. I'm talking about married couples now. And you watch them and they're sitting on a couch and it's just like they fit in each other. It's just they they become like these puzzle pieces where it becomes one thing and you watch that beautiful place of vulnerability and intimacy this beautiful place of peace of safety 
And I'm having done marriage counseling for 20-something years. You watch the countenance of a couple and the way they react to each other at the beginning and at the end of a session. You can see how much progress is being made, often by their vicinity. I've had couples, that, by the way, some of which are actually pastors and in, in, in other ministry as well, where I actually had this sort of, remember those electrostatic balls, weird science static balls, you know, they kind of just shoot out things and you touch it and it goes, that kind of stuff. If you don't know what I'm talking about, never mind. But, but I had it set to volume. And if it hit a certain volume, it would go like this. And it was startling for the moment. And I would put it between certain couples, including some of which are pastors now, and go, look at, you got three times. Three times this thing goes off and we're done today, just so you know. And they'd be like, what, 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 what? They'd check and see how loud they could get. <laughs> well, anyways, you get it. Here's the whole point of it. That God could have offered us a place to sit next to him. And let's face it, that's much more than any of us deserve. He could have gone a step beyond that. He could have offered us a hand to hold. That's way more than we deserve. But that's not my God and yours either, if you serve the same one. My God has opened his bosom to you. As a matter of fact, it tells us this in Ephesians chapter 2, that we are seated in Christ. Not with Christ, beside Christ. We're seated in him. How much closer can you get than that? And in that, John is in this place in verse 23 where he is absorbed in Christ. That's the beauty of sort of falling into someone's breast, if you will, falling into their bosom. Is Again, not weird. Is the idea that, you know, you see a bride fall into her husband in a way she's just kind of consumed now. It's kind of like she's the chocolate part of the M&M and he's the candy coating. And you just kind of watch this thing become one thing and it's so beautiful. And the reason I say that is this came off of the hinge of Jesus saying, if, you receive, if they receive you, they receive me. If they receive me, they receive the Father. This is about receiving. And if I receive Jesus, this place is open to me. And I have to ask myself as I look at this, as I hunger for this, and there are times in my life I've hungered for this more. I'm like, do I see the beauty and the magnificence in this offer? Or would I be more kind of happy to be a business partner? Knowing that I'll kind of show up with the Lord and go, hey, we're cool, right? And the Lord's like, this is my God who has feelings. Saying this is the spot. And notice what John says in the same verse, holding it in synonymy. He says, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom he loved. He's like, man, this is what you get. In Zephaniah 3.17 one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture because it's defined the God that I serve in a way that I get. Because He's not only just in my presence and mighty to save, but He rejoices over me with singing. But He takes delight in me. But in between those two statements, and I'm going backwards, it says He quiets you with His love. And to be honest, as a father I get this more than as a husband, though there have been times when the storm hits and the child freaks out or whatever the thing is and you don't settle them with words. You know, you settle them with your bosom. They just fall in and you just hold them and somewhere in it they'll know they're safe. Man, if you've never had a dad like that, I'm really, really sorry, but you do now if you've accepted Christ. And he'd really love for you just to fall into him and be absorbed. That's what he wants. Now, Jesus had said, when you walk into a room, don't take the place of honor. Take the place, the lowest place. And if you take the lowest place, Wait for someone to call you up. Well, he actually doesn't say wait for someone because at that point you'll be impatient expecting it. He goes, you know, who knows? Maybe you'll get called up. But it would be better to be called up from the lowest place than to be called down from the higher one. In front of everyone, you're like, could you get up, please? This is for someone important. And you're like, oh. And then you have to get in front of everyone and do that. 
The table which Jesus would be sitting at at a Passover, leaning at actually on his left elbow, would, be, would look like a staple. They call it a Roman triclinium because it's three sides. So it would be shaped like that. If Jesus is in the place of honor, John leaning on him, and Peter shouts, or if you will, motions from across to him, the place of honor would be, at the, if you will, at the one end of the... Uh, of the staple that puts Peter at the other end. I kind of get the idea that Peter maybe took the place of the lowest place waiting for someone to call him up. But he doesn't get called up at all in this. But he does get called out, did you notice? So he has the motion to John from across. Now, if he's sitting at the, the thin part of the staple, if you will, how in the world could he do this? He has to be across from him. And he's like, hey, ask him who it is. Now, why do you think Simon Peter would be the one to ask? I would be like, yeah. I mean, my first thought is if I were Simon Peter, my reason would be because everyone's looking at me, right? Could you ask him who it is? Because it's clearly not me, right? You know, and, and, I, and I do kind of love that. So Jesus actually answers, and I remind you, we're at Passover in verse 26, and he answers. Now, he's answering John, who's leaning on his breast, so that doesn't have to be a very loud conversation. Do we have anywhere that John says, it's that guy? Clearly not yet, because nobody believes it when it's Judas. So here, he says, I'll tell you what it's going to be. Remember where we're at in the Passover. In the Passover, that is the, there is the Lechemani. The Lechemani, because I'm dyslexic, I go Lemech, but it's Lechem, Lechemani. And Lechemani is that bread of affliction. It comes from Deuteronomy 16, when we're being reiterated about this particular feast, when it says in verse 3, you shall eat no unleavened, I'm sorry, you shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it. That is the bread of affliction. And again, lechemani. It's the, literally the term that came there. For you came out of the land of Egypt with haste, that you may remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. Now, that bread of affliction, I remind you, has to be dipped. And it has to be dipped in mortar. Mortar is bitter. And it's, that, it's like horseradish. It's wasabi. But you don't kind of give it a little, you know, kind of wimpy dip. You know, it's like the stuff... You put one of those big old globs on there like you think it's ice cream because your whole face is supposed to react. It's supposed to take your breath away. It's supposed to make you cry. It's supposed to make your face red. And I've got to tell you, it's to remind you that's what Egypt was like for you. That's what the old world was like for you. It was bitter. It was, it was lifeless. It was breathless. It was horrible. So should it surprise me that Jesus would dip this bread? And notice it says he's dipped it, and then he hands it to whom? Because you know what Judas is doing? Judas is going back to his Egypt now. Let me ask you, is there a part of you? The first time I read the Exodus story in the book of, yeah, that was an easy one, right? The book of Exodus, the Exodus story. And I read that a mixed multitude leaves. A mixed multitude leaves from Egypt. And I would understand, after if you've been an Egyptian and God just disqualified all the things you worshipped, why worship them anymore? They're all dead and defeated. And, and I get that. And I just remember thinking, well, that's like the church, right? I mean, there are some people and they're excited about going to the promised land. There are those that actually wish they could go back. And then there's those in the middle that really don't know what in the world they're doing. And I remember reading that and going, yeah, that's kind of the church. I've seen all of those. And I remember the Lord pulling me aside and going, Tony, that's you. That's you. You're the mixed multitude. There's a part of you that craves that part, craves the bosom, if you will. And there's another part of you that craves the world. And then there's most of you that seems like it doesn't know what in the world he's doing. You're just kind of wandering around in the wilderness. And, it's like, and then when I see that, I recognize that death of that first generation was such a merciful thing because that's the old man that dies when I came to him. And it tells us here that Judas, on the other hand, he never really left Egypt, at least in a way that he actually had the change of permanent address card in his pocket, if you will. You know, there is a difference between moving away and just leaving for a bit. You want everything kept the way it was so you could go back. Judas, by the way, and hear me on that, Judas may have left, but he didn't permanently leave. 
So he still had in the back door the world that he's running back into. And notice it says, Now, after he took the piece of bread, verse 27, Satan entered him. I think this is a process, and I challenge you to consider it. It started, by the way, in John chapter 13, when at supper being ended, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. As I'm praying, this is what the Lord shows me. Judas started by opening his heart to the enemy's lies. As he opened his, uh, his heart to the enemy's lies, he opened his heart wider to entertain the entitlement that comes with those lies. As he entertains the entitlement that comes with those lies, he opened his heart wider for the enemy's plan, which is betrayal. As he opened his heart now greater for the enemy's betrayal, the enemy's plan, he left his heart wide open and just let Satan walk right on in. We have no idea when Judas joined the crew. We know that he was chosen with the twelve in Matthew 10. We know when the four fishermen were called. We see that. We can even pull out Philip and Nathaniel from John chapter 1. We don't know when Simon Peter, when, I'm sorry, when Judas Iscariot joined the crew. But this we do know. Whenever he joined, he was the man who handled the money. And none of us assumed it was him when Jesus said, one of you will betray me. Which tells me one of two things. Not only was Judas really good at faking it, but Jesus didn't treat him any differently either. If you knew someone was going to betray you, would you treat him any differently? I'll just be honest with you. Maybe I'll just be the one to be the example on this. I would very much treat you differently. To be honest, we live to the point now where we're fearful of someone betraying us and we already treat him differently, don't we? And I'm thinking... Can I ever treat God that way? Before I actually would say, no possible way, well, am I willing to cave into his bosom where I belong? Or do I feel like I'm okay because I'm holding hands with him in my heart? No one at the table knew for what reason Jesus said, look at he says, one of you will betray me. He turns to Judas and goes, now go. And none of us got that. Not a single one of us connected those dots. Well, for a reason, Judas had the money. And because Judas had the money, they thought, well, we need some more things for the feast or he was going to give things to the poor, which apparently seemed like a common event. So much so that we would see that. And now that Judas went away, it was night. And he says, by the way, now imagine from this point on, Judas is on his way. I'd like you to consider. He is on his way to gather an army of soldiers temple guard to go arrest Jesus. He's on his way. Now, during that time where he's, I mean, imagine if you could actually watch the cameras of both. Jesus is going to sit down with his boys, the remaining 11, and then who knows who else. And while, meanwhile, Judas is basically he's going, he's gathering the people, and he's going to come back, and he's going to go and actually know that Jesus is going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane because Jesus had often gone there, and he's going to go there to arrest them. Now, does he show up at this upper room first? We don't know. All we know is that when Jesus gets to that garden and has his meltdown, these guys are on their way to arrest him. So Judas is on it now, and he knows there's no way to stop this thing now. This thing is done. This is a sure thing. And at this point now, Jesus looks at us, the disciples who remain. And, and I remind you, at this point, are we still distracted by the idea that one of us would betray him? Because none of us think it's him. Judas got up and left. We don't even think it's him. Jesus is aware that he's going again. And I'm still looking around going, is it Simon Peter? Who is it? And it isn't like Jesus is like, just so you all know. Because would you have done that? There's a part of me that thinks, well, just so you all know, it's actually Judas. So you guys can rest now because so, I have some things to tell you. He doesn't even do that. And perhaps the reason he doesn't do that is because there is a bit of Judas in each of us. And he would rather us be fearful and hate that part of us and really want Jesus to remove that part of us than for us to go, Psh, couldn't be me. So in verse 31, when Judas had gone out, Jesus says, now, here's our second thing. Now the Son of Man is glorified. God is glorified in him, and if God's glorified in him, God will glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. When Jesus is glorified, God the Father is glorified. And might I say this, remember what the first one of those three things is? Receive. If I receive Jesus, I'll fall into his bosom, and I cannot help but glorify him. Glorify just simply means, in the simplest sense, show Jesus for who he is. 
And notice the term he turns now to his little children. Now we get to our last point. I'm going to only be with you for a little while longer. Do you know how long I'm going to be with you? Till Judas comes back. Let's be honest. Judas is on his way to get the guys to arrest me so I could be beaten, tortured to death. So I'm not going to be gone. I'm not going to be with you long. So you need to recognize this. You're going to be actually looking for me, but where I'm going, you can't come. No, he doesn't say where I'm going, you won't come, like you, it's your choice. He's going, I'm not allowing you to come to this place. Now, there's an argument over what this is. What happened to Jesus after his death? Did Jesus go into hell and proclaim freedom? Did he descend? Well, we have texts that could say that. There's no doubt about that. It tells us, by the way, <clears throat> for what it's worth, in Ephesians 4.9, now that this he ascended, but what does it mean? But first, he descended into the lower parts of the earth. Not just lower, lower parts of heaven, or he ascended to, or descended to the earth, but the lower parts of the earth. Could it be that Jesus went down there to proclaim freedom to all who were comforted at Abraham's bosom and then to lead them free? Now, we're talking about areas that, by the way, more men infinitely more brilliant than I have argued over and haven't come to a conclusion on. But what's clear in all of this is where Jesus is going, they're not allowed to go. But here's the weird part about that. What about the guy that dies on the cross? The thief that he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. He was willing to take that guy? Well, what was the difference between that guy and all of these other guys that are, he's talking to right now? He's dead. Well, that's the difference, really, if you think about it. Because that guy's, it isn't like, well, today you'll be with me in paradise whether you die or not, the guy's going to die. And it'll be, now how do I know he dies that day? Because can't you last even in much as 11 days? Because they're going to break the legs of the other two guys to make sure they die, they die that night. So imagine Jesus is like, first of all, you need to know you're dying today. And you're coming with me. So imagine this. The guy on the cross, wherever Jesus went, he's the one guy who could tell us and actually say he saw it. Is that a weird thought? What if it was? Well, I do love this. What Jesus is saying is, where I'm going now, I'm going to go there so you don't have to. But you're so dumb, <laughs> you would think you should go there anyways. So I'm not going to let you go there. But where I'm going after that, you can go there with me. Now what's really cool, and I don't want you to miss this, is that Jesus is talking about the fact, look, I'm going away. You can't go where I'm going right now. But later you'll be able to. And he goes, but this is the part you need to know. While I'm away, you've got to love each other. And that's our third word. The first was receive. And if I receive Jesus, I can't help but glorify him. And if I glorify him, the one way that I'm going to glorify him more than any other isn't by loving the world. That would be the easy thought. It's by loving his family. Christians. You know what's amazing? There are Christians that actually believe they're representing Christ best by going out there and loving the world and hating the church. Actually, John, the guy who's leaning on Jesus' bosom as Jesus is saying this, knows better. Listen to what he writes in 1 John. 1 John 3.10 In this the children of God and the children of devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Not just love humankind. Brother is people adopted by Christ. First um, John 3.14 We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. First John 3.17 Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart to him, how does the love of God abide in him? It must be practical. 1 John 4.20 If someone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother, he's a liar. Don't you love John? It isn't like, what do you think he means by that? I think you know. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? 1 John 4.21 And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. I think it's pretty simple. So Jesus looks, and notice it says, by this all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. 
Those look around the room. So here I am thinking, oh, it's probably Peter. That guy's probably Judas. And he goes, now look, you guys need to love one another. Now, isn't that great that at this moment, Judas is gone? I get this. It's like while Jesus is not seen personally, he must be seen practically. He's like, I'm going away. They're going to look and not find me. But you know where they're going to find me? In the way that you treat each other. Simon Peter goes, where are you going, Lord? You know what that means? Look, at this is what Jesus said. I'm going away. You can't come now, but you'll come later. I'm going away. You guys need to love each other. And he goes, where are you going? Guess what part he missed? He blew the fuse at going, and so he didn't even get to hear the love part. Don't miss that. And here becomes our last major point where we can actually draw a parallel between Judas Iscariot and Simon Peter. Peter says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for your sake. And of course, Jesus says, no, let me ask you something. Do you think Peter genuinely believed it? I do. The issue was not that he didn't feel it. What Simon and Simon have in common, if you will, Simon and the son of Simon have in common, the rock and the betrayer, is not just forbidding Jesus' cleansing initially, although Peter will, will reconsider, but is the issue of a serious overestimation of their personal strength. Somewhere in all of it, and I watch this with addicts all the time, you just, and you know, if, you, if you've ever had something you've struggled with regularly, you just feel like if you prayed it with a little bit more oomph, Maybe it'll mean something this time. I really mean it. But once you have kids, you realize how goofy that actually looks. It took me that long. Oh, no, I'll never. I really mean it, Dad. Yeah. I'm sure you really mean it. And then you deal with guys that are struggling with something, and they're like, no, this time I really mean it. I'm like, are you willing to do what is necessary to not ever let this happen? Oh, no, no, I'm strong enough. I can do this. Oh, well, I'm actually, pardon me for saying, I'm not putting my chips on you right now. And Simon Peter is looking, he's like, you, look at, you can count on me. I mean, you call me Rocky, right? You call me the Rock. Yo, yo, you can trust me. And Jesus looks and he goes, let me tell you what you don't know that I do. You're going to actually tell everyone tonight that you don't even know me. You're going to go to the point where you would actually say, if I do know this guy, let me go to hell. That's how far you're going to get tonight. You know what's amazing? Clearly, Simon wasn't treated different. Or he wouldn't have popped off like that, let's be honest. But Jesus still treated him kindly and lovingly. To the point where Peter felt the freedom to spout off this great rhapsody of behavior that he is actually going to fall on his face for. And let's just be honest. Aren't you thankful that Peter does this? Because it brings encouragement to those of us who have ever felt like we've really blown it. You know, as I look at this, I realize those three things, receive, glorify, love. Receive. What did I know about Judas from this? Satan put in Judas's heart to betray him. He received that. And then to glorify, to see what he's really like, Satan entered him. Talk about receiving. And then he got up to betray Jesus. Sounds like he was really glorifying the enemy, wasn't he? Showing what the enemy really looked like. And then love, Judas took the bread and left. I mean, you'd think if you were going to betray, if you were going to betray someone and they were handing you food, would you take it? Is that a weird thought? Like, you're about to basically stab this guy in the back. We'll literally have him whipped in the back. And yet in all of that, you'd be like, yeah, sure, I'll take that. Really? Do you receive it because if you don't, people will start to wonder why you denied it? In a couple of weeks, we'll have communion again here. And when we do, would it be weird to go, well, I really shouldn't take this because I'm really not in a place where I really want Jesus? But if I don't take it, people are going to know. I mean, let me say this. It'd be just be better if you changed your heart and actually received the Lord for who He is. 
But is it, you know, like we keep up these images and appearances because we don't want people to look at us to see us for who we don't want to see us for. That we know we are at moments. But let me say this to close this. When God made his first bride, it's our first surgery and it's our first scar. Do you remember what God took to make his first bride? He took a rib. And where does the rib come from? The bosom. And he pulled that rib. It says, God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept. When a deep sleep falls upon me, I sleep too. Well, and it says, and he took the rib out of Adam and then he closed the, pl- closed the place. And I love the fact that you think that the first scar in all of Scripture is Adam's. And Adam can say, from this hole in my side, I got my bride. And I can't help but think, that's Genesis 2. Fast forward 3,000 plus years. And Jesus is hanging on a cross and then raising again. And turning to Thomas and say, touch and feel, flesh and bones. You you don't know the ghost doesn't have those kind of things. Jesus could look and say, from this hole in my side, I got my bride. Pierced and striped just like the bread that Jesus handed to Judas Iscariot. To this day, it's not kosher, this unleavened bread, unless there's no leaven. And it's pierced and striped. Why do they have to do it that way? Striped because it goes on a grill with an open fire and it has to be there. I think it's something like between 14 and 17 seconds. Pierced because if it isn't, it'll be, actually have the potential to rise. Even though there's no uh, leaven in it, it'll rise because the heat will just cause it to separate. So they pierce it so it can't rise up. The idea. Now hear me on this. Since the beginning, God has been reaching out to you and wanting more than just you to sit beside him. Occasional laugh sit at church and go, we're cool, we're cool, we're buds. God's my homeboy. More than just a handhold where you know at this point you're actually willing to be seen. Let's be honest, a lot of Christianity today, those who call themselves Christ, won't even walk hand in hand with Christ outside somewhere. In other words, they won't let people know that they actually have accepted the gift of Jesus Christ. But let's face it, man. You ever see a couple and they get somewhere like the, you know, the guy and the girl are walking and a cute girl walks by or a cute guy walks by and then they like drop each other's hands? And you think, mm, that's not so good. That doesn't look right. But do we do that? We see something that may look advantageous, but we know that if we call them a Christian, we're going to think we're loony, so they're backing off of that. So we drop their hand and we go, no, 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 we're cool. We're friends. We're friends. You know, God's cool. Just don't bring up Jesus' name. But you take a couple and they are so one interlocking Chinese puzzle. And you look at them and you think, let's be honest, we tend to think some, one of those two must be very needy. Because that's our natural place. And you know why we think that way? Because we would never do that. We would never be that vulnerable. We would never be that open. We'd never be that place. Let's be honest. Because maybe we have been, and we know what happens if you do that wrong to the wrong person. And that hurts. And I look at that and I think, but if I can be honest, I am needy. I need Jesus for my every breath. And I'll be honest, I don't mind telling you, I'm that needy. I am that needy because I need to fall in Christ. And if I was going to be honest... The good news is he's more than willing. He's offering. As we go to prayer, my prayer today is for you and for me that God would kill the Judas in us. The part that would actually rather receive what the enemy would throw in accusation that would say, oh, don't you do that because you know what happens if you do that versus the part that says, Jesus says, please come and fall into me. And when I do, I wouldn't be afraid to glorify him. I wouldn't be afraid to walk arm in arm, deep in in him when I walk out these doors. And when I do that, I'll look at you differently. 
Because you know what would happen if I walk out there and I get mocked by someone because I'm walking with Jesus and I got their shirt that says Jesus full stop or whatever, and you walk out there and you get hammered for your faith and we sit in this room together, what happens? We look at each other differently. The closest people are the people you fight with. Not fight against, the ones you fight with. I've had several situations in my life where the person that was literally back to back with me, if that person failed, I was a dead man. And that person, well, you never, I mean, there, there is an intimacy there that is so different than anyone else you know. I mean, there have been moments in life where my wife and I have been back to back, so to speak, taking on whatever the thing is. And those are the greatest moments, most horrible moments, but some of the greatest moments between us because of that. And so for all of the things that we could say, knowing that Jesus would die on the cross for us, that's where he's going in all of this. If there is, I mean, if Jesus, we've all agreed in here, if Judas had actually let Jesus cleanse him, if he had actually gone and, and, and versus taking his own life in his own hands, this would be a very different story for him. And that's where it starts at the cross, right? Where we really receive him on his terms. I, 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 how do you improve that? And as we receive him on his terms, that we would really glorify him out in the world, and as we glorify him, that we would love each other the way we should. Would you pray with me? Lord, you talk about your Ephesian church in Revelation 2. As a church that willingly studies your truth to know right from wrong and to know the false, the phonies from those that are genuine. And yet you still had this against them. But they were so right, they were dead right. And you tell them to remember from this amazing height from which they've fallen that there was this tremendous high place that they were at with you. Not because they climbed it, but because you pulled them up. And you said to remember and repent, to change our mind. And then we turned to those things we did in the beginning. When it really was just us and you. And I pray, Lord, that you'd forgive us for any and every time we've dropped your hand. That you would forgive us for where you've offered the bosom to rest in. But we've been too busy even doing things we think were for you to enjoy that rest. Please today, change that. Reignite the romance between us. Or I'm just blown away that you'd want me at all. I just don't get how I can drop your hand. I just don't get it. When you're the most amazing thing in the universe. And Jesus, you who washed the feet of Judas, you who would look at his disciples afterwards and tell them, what I really want is for you to love one another. Help me to hear your words right, to follow you as I should. And Lord, that you would open my heart to this place of vulnerability with you. 
a place of peace, a place of intimacy, a place of safety. So Lord, please, as I've received this gift of Jesus, his death, the cross, and his resurrection three days, pr- three days afterward, and that whole new life is one to rest in you, let me live that life now. Glorifying you as I should, but glorifying you not because I'm trying to squirt out glorification, but because I'm so busy enjoying you that people see you. And they see you in the way that I love my brothers and sisters. And I just willingly offer to you this humble request. Kill the Judas in me. Kill him dead. That what be left, Lord, is the part that just craves you. And Lord, for those moments when I become aware of my sinfulness, my filth, remind me that you are still mighty to save. And if I'm willing to confess to you, you are still faithful and just to forgive my sins and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. So when the enemy tries to throw something in the distant past or whatever at me, that just reminds me of a time when I should have held your hand a little bit more high or whatever. Lord, um, thank you for your mercy and grace. And thank you, Lord, that though the Scripture cannot be broken, and I look at those things, I'm also reminded of the promises you've given. They can't be broken either. That you who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. That I'm still your workmanship created, Lord, for the good works you've prepared beforehand that I would walk in. That you'll never leave me nor forsake me, nor can anything separate me from your love. And that in you, as I walk in the Spirit, I'm more than a conqueror. So today, Lord, set us right, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.